one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. As much as little Johnny Haig loved machinery and chemistry, he despised the zinc plater in the prison workshop. As with a backlog of pans to plate, it was his pride at stake. But as a small stoic man who never let his emotions sully his day, with little more than a frown and a huff, he set about fixing the fault. The usual suspect was the woefully inadequate electromagnetic bell, a laughably basic battery easily a few decades beyond being obsolete, consisting of a zinc electrode in a copper-lined bath of sulfuric acid. Cracking open the ceramic case, Johnny cautiously waited for the caustic cloud of sulfur dioxide to settle, for fear of being blistered, burned or blinded. But reaching in to swap out the worn electrode from the thick condensation on the ceramic case's ceiling fell a single drop of acid. As the tiny toxic drip burned his skin, smoking and searing, as feeding off his limbs abundant liquid, the acid slowly ate away at his finger's flesh. Swiftly dunking his scorched digit into cold water, as the intense pain ceased, Johnny thought, thank heavens it was only a drop. But what if it wasn't? The mouse was already dead. Being small and skinny, its lifeless body lay within a whisker of a field of juicy berries. But trapped inside the prison's grey walls, it had starved to death. And Johnny sympathised. Holding the cold little mouse by its limp tail, Johnny carefully placed it in a glass jar. And as he dipped a ladle into the battery's ceramic case and filled the glass jar to the brim with sulfuric acid, the dead mouse began to fizz, bubble, smoke and boil, until the transparent fluid was nothing but a cloudy black broth. Johnny stirred it a bit, but felt no resistance. So tipping the sizzling glass into the sink, amongst the dark fizzing stew, there was no hair, skin, bones or teeth. Within minutes, the little mouse had been reduced to an unrecognisable gloop, and as its viscous remains slid down the drain and out into the sewer, it was gone forever, as if the mouse had never existed.
But a mouse is just a mouse. On the 17th of September 1943, John George Haig was released from Lincoln Prison, a dreadful little place chock full of perverts, pontis and pilferers. And although, shamefully, his last stretch inside was due to him pinching a fridge, yes, his license forbade any acts of criminality, but never again would he risk his freedom. Well, not for anything so petty. No, this time, Johnny had money and murder on his mind. By early 1944, having left the halfway house at St. James Street, which was tormentingly close to Pall Mall, Buckingham Palace and the Ritz, Johnny worked hard, earned an honest wage, and lived in the Crawley home of his old pal, Alan Stevens. Times were tough. The economy was bleak. Rationing was strict. Law-abiding bods freely bought goods on the black market. And the Nazis were poised just 80 miles from the English coast. And yet, unwilling to make a mistake, Johnny had gone straight. Hardly cutting the figure of an entrepreneur, his aspirations had taken a back seat. As being a penniless nobody who dressed in threadbare suits, it was impossible to lure a moneyed mark to their death. He knew Alan, of course, but why should he murder Alan? Yes, he liked him, his wife, and their young daughter, Barbara, who, let's not beat about the bush, was besotted by Johnny. And yes, Alan had some assets, a home, a workshop, and a storeroom on Leopold Road. But his small income didn't amount to much. So setting aside their friendship, yes, he could kill Alan. But what would be the point? Shortly after the D-Day landings, with the tide of war still uncertain, as Alan struggled to make ends meet, Johnny did the decent thing for his old pal and moved out. Clutching nothing but three cheap suits, a few pounds, and a half-finished book of ration coupons, Johnny was all alone. And as a small, thin, but charming little chap, who didn't curse, argue, or fight, little Johnny Haig, the murder virgin, had to take a giant step from being a petty swindler to a cold-blooded killer. But knowing no one, his first victim would be an old friend, whose death would be far from perfect. So unnerving are the similarities that Johnny Haig and Mac McSwan could have been brothers. Born two years and two weeks apart, William Donald McSwan was the only child of Donald and Amy, a clerk and a housewife. 33 years old, married a few months, but faithful to their old age. Both raised as Protestants, Mac adopted his parents' Presbyterian faith, having devoted his life to the Lord and shunning all extravagances. So living a simple life, the McSwans were always neat, clean and frugal. And although they never socialised, in a tight-knit but introverted family, they never wished to offend anyone. All Donald and Amy ever wanted was to serve God 
and to do the best for their son. As a bright but easily distracted boy, Mac won a scholarship to Eton, a prestigious boarding school for academically gifted boys, where he excelled in science and religion. Just like Johnny, Mac was quite a solitary figure, and being sensitive, timid and shy, although his achievement pleased his proud parents, he missed his mum and longed for the days when he could finally come home. Johnny and Mac were similar in so many ways. Height, weight, size and age. They both had boyish looks, a sweet nature, a childlike innocence and were tied by choice to their parents' reins. They disliked dancing, were afraid of the dark, rarely drank and were practically celibate. With a love of science, a passion for engineering, a desire to become an entrepreneur and a deep-seated frustration that they might never reach their true potential. And although the two men wouldn't meet for a few decades, whereas Johnny would become the older, wiser and more worldly brother, being almost mouse-like, although Mac had a true business sense, as the little brother Johnny never had, Mac remained in his shadow. It was almost as if, from the moment they were born, that fate was guiding them together. They were two sweet but sensitive boys with no siblings or close friends who would become like brothers. And yet, as one became rich, the other became poor. One would be famous, the other would be invisible. One would stay alive as the other would die. And as one was buried, the other would never be found. Soon the killer would meet his first victim. But just like Johnny, Mac harbored a guilty secret. As a very practically minded adult, Mac was physically and socially awkward. A skinny, pigeon-chested mess of clumsy suits, insipid ties and tweed waistcoats, like a relic of the wrong era. Burdened by a long, ill-fitting face, his features resembled a little boy with a costume box playing at being a grown-up. With bushy stuck-on eyebrows, a painted-on smile, a little moustache like it was held in place by a bit of coat hanger, and a thick mop of brown hair, side parted by his mum. Everything about him seemed mismatched. His dimpled chin resembled a feeble attempt to be rugged. His neat row of pocket pens was sullied by the ruddy complexion of an exasperated man. His nervous jerky motions belied a softly spoken voice, which, in a busy room, would be little more than a whisper. And set in a haunted face were two sad little eyes, adept at hiding his lies for fear of being found out. In 1932, aged 21, Max sought his independence. Just like the Hagues, his folks dreamed that their boy would marry a good woman and maybe have babies. Thankfully, he lacked Johnny's selfish callousness, which cruelly saw him dump a young wife and child to further his own fortune. But as a shy, kindly man, who love seemed to elude, marriage was not an option. So to give him his freedom, Mac moved into a shared house at 86 Tatchbrook Street in Pimlico. 
a few doors down from the family home. Two years later, after a short courtship, Mac got engaged to a lovely lady from Clacton called Dorothy Bailey. He liked her, she liked him, but neither loved each other. And although they remained good friends, the engagement lasted just a week. Mac wanted love, but it was a love which was forbidden. Frowned on by his faith, outlawed by the courts, and possibly but not improbably discreetly disguised from his doting parents, for almost all of his adult life, Mac kept his sexuality a secret. London's West End in the 1930s was a place where, although illegal and punishable by prison, in and around Soho, it hosted the Cave of the Golden Calf, London's first gay pub, the Caravan, London's first gay club, and waitresses at the Lion's Cornerhouse Tea Room in Piccadilly Circus reserved a special section for homosexuals, which was known as the Lily Pond. So being gay was no biggie. Out was out. Only for a sweetie, as socially awkward as Mac, who dressed down, looked odd, and often mumbled, meeting someone new was always hard. As being both incredibly shy and illegally gay, as a prosperous landlord, a successful businessman, an engineer and an employer, Mac had a lot more than most men to lose. So his freedom didn't awaken his sexuality. If anything, it suppressed it. So being shy, throughout his life, his best friends would always be his mum, his dad and Johnny. William Donald McSwan was a true entrepreneur, bright but easily bored, private but productive, quiet but creative, who said very little but could turn his hand to any business and make it a success. In 1934, 25-year-old Mac opened his first pinball parlour in Westminster under the name of Max Automatics. And being small but profitable, it spawned several more in Shepherd's Bush in Waltham Green, where in December 1935, he would hire a charming ex-con called Johnny Haig. His trusted friend, his surrogate sibling, his kindred spirit, his confidant, and much later, his killer. In interview room three of Chelsea Police Station, Johnny sat in the smoky, sweaty box, surrounded by Webb, Symes and Barrett boasting with a cocky casualness about how easily he had killed his friend. William Donald McSwan, or Mac to me, I met in the Goat Tavern public house on Kensington High Street. From there we went to 79 Gloucester Road, where in the basement, which I'd rented, I hit him over the head with a cosh. He was dead within five minutes or so. I put him in a 40-gallon tank and disposed of him with acid. As before, I tipped the sludge down a manhole. And although he had practiced, maybe not the luring, the trapping or the killing, but a small part of the disposal on a dead mouse, contrary to Johnny's gloating, the murder of Mac was far from perfect. In 1935, when Johnny met Mac, the two strikingly similar men struck up a close bond. And seeing his struggling pal in need of help, 
Mac became the one constant in Johnny's turbulent life, as a friendly face and an honest employer. But as the purveyor of three pinball parlours, Mac was only small fry. In 1944, by the time Johnny had left Lincoln Prison, having learned two Latin words, made a mouse vanish, and concocted a ludicrous plan to murder for money, Mac, his oldest pal, his longest employer, and his surrogate sibling, had blossomed from a frustrated youth into a successful entrepreneur. With Max Automatics having boomed from three to thirty pinball parlours, even though as a strict Presbyterian, who didn't live a lavish life, never flashed the cash, lived frugally in a small rented flat, and didn't look like he had two farthings to rub together, Johnny salivated at the wealthy businessman his old pal had become. As Mac, who rarely had more than a few pounds in his wallet, also owned a fleet of cars, a sweet shop in Mitcham, his own business called McSwan Engineering, with a lucrative wartime contract, four homes in Beckenham, Rains Park and Wimbledon, which he owned and rented out, as well as seven bank accounts, with savings and securities worth £1,100. In today's money, the assets of 33-year-old William Donald McSwan would be worth almost a quarter of a million pounds. By contrast, Johnny's bank account had just 26. But 1944 was a year of great uncertainty for Mac, as although he had always been a quiet, cautious and law-abiding man who lived with the Lord in his heart, his life would take a very unusual turn. For whatever reason, during the last year of his life, just like Johnny in his moment of crisis, Mac had committed three petty crimes, including the theft of a box of lipsticks and a US Army torch. He served no prison time and received a small fine, but used four different addresses to evade his parole. That May, Mac moved into an all-male, all-gay house at 22 Kempsford Gardens in Earl's Court and although it felt secure, it was far from safe. As the landlord was suspected of gross indecency, and his co-tenant was convicted of pimping out Ren boys, one of whom was a fair-haired teenager, who Mac, who had no siblings, claimed was his nephew. If caught, he could lose everything. One month later, as the D-Day landings saw miles of petrified men massacred, keen for fresh cannon fodder, the rules of conscription were changed. Although he had registered as a conscientious objector, with his reserved occupation revoked, which was the real reason his pinball company made aircraft parts, Mac would be ordered to fight. But as a painfully shy pacifist, who wouldn't last a single second in war, and whose own father who was still haunted by the trauma, night terrors and tremors, having been conscripted in World War I, Mac failed to attend his call-up. And now, he was a deserter. Fearing arrest, Mac was poised to flee. Thankfully, he had a good friend like Johnny. William Donald McSwan was the perfect mark an intensely private recluse, with everything to lose and nowhere to go, who only trusted his parents and his close pal, 
and whose assets were easy pickings for a convicted fraudster and skillful forger who had mastered his victim's handwriting. I took his watch, his identity card, and any odds and ends before putting him in the tank. And although, when shown the signature he had forged, Johnny flippantly quipped, Yes, I signed McSwan's name. I remember I didn't make a good job of the signature. Instead of Donald, I wrote Ponald. Spelling was never his strong suit, so as the first two convictions had occurred, having hastily misspelled the victim's name and the town of Guildford, he should have learned his lesson, but didn't. And yet, as the first of his six supposedly perfect murders, the spelling wouldn't be his biggest mistake. Being like brothers, just as Mac had been Johnny's rock during his years in and out of prison, now his closest pal could return the favour. As a recent convict, parolee and deserter, Mac was scared and feared arrest, but was soothed by an old hand as he looked to Johnny as his older, wiser brother. To lower his public profile, Mac sold his pinball business and settled a few unresolved affairs. Eager to find a discreet but profitable venture to dip into while he lay incommunicado. Every day, Mac and Johnny would meet to discuss the things which fueled their passion, like gadgets, patents, and inventions. In a few short months, Johnny had ingratiated himself into every detail of Mac's life. So welcome was his presence felt that although shy recluses who rarely went out, Mac's parents, Donald and Amy treated Johnny to take tea with them in their rented top-floor flat at 45 Claverdon Street in Pimlico. He liked the McSwans. He liked them a lot. As a happily married, deeply religious and recently retired couple who chose worship over wealth and would do anything for their only child, they reminded him of his own parents. Their clothes were neat, their home was sparse and they lived a frugal existence on a meagre pension of just 22 shillings a week. To Johnny, they looked like they didn't have two farthings to rub together, but to Donald and Amy, they had everything, their family and their faith. Sensing their fear for their son, as the authorities closed in, he reassured the McSwans that he would do the very best to protect their boy. But in truth, Johnny was planning his murder. On Friday the 1st of September 1944, to lend his crime the air of middle-class respectability, Johnny had Alan Stevens' besotted daughter Barbara, who worked cheap, fast, and whose spelling was flawless, mock up a set of business cards and letterhead in the name of Union Group Engineering, a name easy to confuse with Alan's own business, the Union Road Tool and Garage Company, also based in Crawley. On Tuesday the 5th, at Taylor Lovegrove & Co, an estate agent's at 79 Gloucester Road in South Kensington, Johnny leased a small, secluded, but self-contained basement under their offices, for what he described as experimental work for a government contract. He paid by cheque, 
spending £7 of the £26 he had left to ensure it didn't bounce, and secured the tenancy starting that day using his own letterhead. On Thursday the 7th, from East London chemical supplier Canning & Co, he ordered a gallon of hydrochloric acid and 20 gallons of sulfuric. Two everyday chemicals for an engineering firm doing wartime work for the military. He paid £3.15 shillings by cheque, confirmed it on his own letterhead, but listed his address not at 79 Gloucester Road, but as the War Emergency Liaison Centre at the nearby Onslow Court Hotel, and signed it J. Haig, Technical Liaison Officer. It was delivered the next day. With his preparations precise, his patience exemplary, and his grand plan vastly superior to anything ever conceived, although he was a murder virgin, Johnny knew that its execution would be perfection. On Saturday the 9th at 6pm, Johnny invited his old pal and potential business partner for a meal at their favourite pub, the Goat Tavern on Kensington High Street. Not one person in the pub witnessed them. But why would they? They were just two mild-mannered men in a busy pub, chatting about ventures, inventions, gadgets and Johnny's new company. As a teetotal, Johnny nursed a small sherry. But eager to cheer up his down-in-the-dumps chum, he treated Mac to a few wines. And as a slight man who rarely drank, it didn't take much to get him tipsy. At 8pm they left. The walk was short, the mood was good, and the street was busy. But no one spotted the two men, as side by side, smiling and slightly sozzled. Johnny led Mac via the more discreet back door in Stanhope Mews, and into the secluded basement at 79 Gloucester Road. William Donald McSwan was never seen again as his body would vanish completely. But the death and disposal of Mac didn't happen exactly how Johnny described it in his confession. Back in Chelsea Police Station, as little Johnny Haig cockily crowed about his six perfect murders to his captive audience of Webb, Barrett and Symes, the three coppers stayed silent as they listened and jotted down every boastful word, compiling a statement which they could later check and correct. William Donald McSwan met me at the Goat Tavern, and from there we went to the basement, which I had rented. I hit him on the head with a cosh. He was dead within five minutes or so. I put him in a 40-gallon tank of acid and disposed of the sludge down a manhole. He made it sound so simple. So precise, and so superior. Sulfuric. But in truth, the murder virgin hadn't a clue. The basement at 79 Gloucester Road was small but secure. Three unfurnished rooms with thick brick walls, a concrete ceiling, a blocked-off stairs to the offices above, two locked doors and no windows. It was empty, except for a few pinball machine parts, a length of lead pipe, a rusty hand axe, a manhole cover to the main drain, 
a Winchester of hydrochloric acid, and two ten-gallon carboys of sulfuric. I hit him on the head with a kosh. And yet, with his description vague and shifting in different statements, from a table leg to a lead pipe to an axe, as no kosh was ever found, it's likely that being so focused on the money, the most important thing that Johnny forgot to bring was a murder weapon. He was dead within five minutes or so. For which we can only take his word. But five minutes is a long time. And although a blunt force, which can cause a smashed skull, a bleeding brain, swelling, spasms, paralysis, and a slow and agonizing death, makes Johnny sound callous, it also suggests that he was inept, either being too weak to whack hard, too feeble to finish him off, or maybe he missed. Eventually I stood up and was appalled by the presence of a corpse on my hands. So appalled was Johnny, that whether alive, dead or dying, he stripped Mac of his personal possessions. I left the question of dealing with the corpse until the following day, and then I went home, where he slept soundly. I wondered how it was possible for me to have done something from which I would normally shrink. In fact, Johnny was so remorseful, having committed his first murder, that he woke late, had brunch, and sauntered into a car showroom. The question of disposal did not arise until later that evening. Then the method appeared obvious, which we know was a lie, as using his own letterhead and checkbook, he had ordered the acid two days before. As perfect murders go, it wasn't great. Having had to improvise a murder weapon, which had only semi-successfully dispatched his victim, he soon realised that he had forgotten something equally vital. When I returned to the basement, I had to find a drum in which to place the body. Just like the glass jar in which he had once dissolved a mouse, only bigger. This was not difficult. I found one which had been used as a water butt in St. Stephen's churchyard. Stealing the 40-gallon steel drum from a house of God. To transport it back, I borrowed a handcart from a builder's yard. And all the while probably whistling nonchalantly and saying, Oh, don't mind me. I'm only going to dissolve a corpse. Back in the basement, I put McSwan in the drum, which was no mean feat, as with no hint of either of his victims being hacked apart, for a small weedy man to fit a 5 foot 8 inch body into a 3 foot steel drum, he must have rolled it onto its side, hog-tied the body, and slid it in back first, leaving the feet and hands poking out of the top. And all the while, praying that the weather-worn drum was rust-free, watertight, and had enough space for the body and at least 20 gallons of acid. I then considered the problem of getting the acid out of the carboy. Having blindly ordered enough acid to do the job, although the Winchester of hydrochloric arrived in a one-gallon glass bottle, which only weighed six pounds. The two ten-gallon carboys of sulfuric had to be delivered by two burly men in a truck, 
as each full bottle weighed 165 pounds, heavier than little Johnny Haig. This was something which hadn't occurred to me. I had to do it by bucket. Forgetting that, just four years before, a single drop had singed his finger. But still, he slopped 20 gallons of highly corrosive acid by hand, with no gloves, no apron and no mask. And as it had before, as the fat reacted with the acids, the body began to fizz, bubble and smoke. But a dead mouse has almost no fat. Whereas, although skinny, Mac had fat in abundance. So as his flesh was stripped, his fluids boiled, and the acids superheated the violently shaking drum, a thick soupy cloud of noxious gas and human vapours enveloped the airless and windowless basement. I hadn't thought to prepare for the fumes. I was badly choked and had to go out for fresh air. So coughing his lungs out and gasping for breath, Johnny dashed out into the quiet of Stanhope Mews, followed by a caustic fog of sulphur dioxide and the deadly stench of boiling fat. And yet, as the first of his six supposedly perfect murders, if you ignore his awful spelling, the lack of a murder weapon, a steel drum, a set of gloves and a gas mask, even this was not his biggest mistake. Eventually, the job was done, and I left the basement, locking the door behind me. As unlike the mouse, which was destroyed in 20 minutes, it took two full days until Mac was gone. Having given the dark fizzing broth a stir with a stick, subsequently, I poured the sludge down a manhole, conveniently situated in the basement. If anything remained, it will now be in whichever sewer flows into the sea and as he tipped the thick black loop, which was once his pal, into a dark festering hole, he flushed the last remnants of their friendship down the drain. I experienced no remorse after the killing. None. With the dirty deed done, Johnny Haig, the one-time murderer and budding serial killer, had the carboys collected, the steel drum destroyed, the basement vacated, and having arrogantly celebrated Mac's murder by scrawling a small cross in his diary, he set about weaving an entirely believable story that the McSwan's only son was now in hiding. I explained that he had gone off to avoid his call-up and wrote a number of letters purporting to come from him, explaining the details of the disposition of the assets. As a convicted fraudster and forger, this would prove no problem as he had Mac's ID, his signature, several forged letters, a foolproof plan, and best of all, the complete and total trust of his victims next of kin. Between 1944 and 1949, John George Haig befriended six wealthy persons, starting with William Donald McSwan. He assumed his identity, inherited his estate, and drained his assets. All six victims would mysteriously vanish, and almost no one would notice. But Johnny had overlooked one small detail. 
which would prove to be his biggest mistake. William Donald McSwan, the prosperous landlord, successful businessman, engineer and employer, didn't have a single penny or asset to his name. In fact, even with forged legal papers, whether dead or alive, Mac was worth nothing. Friends, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was part two of Sulfuric, with a third part of six continuing next week. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Johnny Rex, Stephanie Thomas, Clara Hughes, Victoria Nielsen, and Helen Woodley. And as always, a big thank you to everyone who has liked, shared, commented, and reviewed this small independent podcast. It's very much appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. What did we do? Okay, that's not too bad. I can edit that. Whew. Right. 
geese are, oh, stomach's rumbling now, geese are making noise, coots making noise, aircraft flying over. That must mean I don't have to edit it out anymore because it's extra mile time. Yay, extra mile time. Hello, everyone. How are we? Are we all good? Are we all good? Are we all well? Are we all etc, etc. Um, God, it. I, I woke up very early this morning to record this because the uh, I wanted to make sure it was nice and quiet outside. Oh dear, I'm a bit tired now. Uh, that was good, I th- but but considering considering it went well, I kind of flew through that. It won't be as as complicated to edit, which is good. There wasn't that many aircraft. Coot was a little bit noisy, but not too bad. The seagulls were a little bit noisy, but not too bad. Uh, there was a man in the park who went, "Oh, you!" Really loud for no reason because I'm right next to a really big park. Um, it, a cyclist probably ran him over, you know. Uh, but that seems to be it. So um, I'm going to make myself a tea. It's tea o'clock. Uh, pop that there. Tea on. Um, there we go. Tea bag in. Oh, trying to work out how to finish doing the edit today because my, my generator broke last week. And I've ordered a new one, but it hasn't arrived yet. So obviously, because I, because uh, I haven't got mains power where I am, I have to rely on battery power on my laptop, which it's a Lenovo. It should be six to eight hours, but I actually get about three out of it maximum. Uh, and my, my generator went and blew up, so I've got one out being fixed, but the new one that I've ordered hasn't turned up yet because they couldn't deliver it. They couldn't work out where I lived. To my PO box, so they sent it back to somewhere up north, Nottingham. They sent it back to Nottingham. I was like, "Why the flip?" So I'm hoping my new generator turns up today. Otherwise, oh, I have to connect up my laptop to the engine of the boat, and the engine of the boat is really loud and it vibrates, so it's hard to edit to. So oh, that was interesting, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. Uh, what were we up to? Uh, diet, diet's going well. Uh, was this week eight now? Doing, I, I've had, I had like a Belgian bun this week. I haven't had any chocolate yet. Still, I had a couple of biscuits. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put bad stuff back into my system because you know you can diet, but the problem is when you when you go off your diet and then you go back onto crap food, your body goes, what the hell is this? And it struggles. I've noticed that when I've eaten, like I was eating the biscuits, I could really taste the fat in them. So I'm trying to put bad things back into my body ready for Christmas because it's Christmas time coming up soon. Uh, spoilers, Christmas time. Uh, so that's good. What else has happened? Uh, about four years ago, I fractured my ribs. Uh, and uh, anyone who's ever had fractured ribs before knows that you really can't fix them. They just kind of they have to just sit and repair themselves and you've just got to not do much. I thought they were almost done, but obviously everyone, anyone who's a nurse or a doctor knows that ribs don't don't repair. They just kind of get a little bit better, but you have to be careful. Uh, I was in bed doing some writing and I put my uh, my hands down to lift myself up a bit, to get myself a bit more comfortable. And I heard a pop and then I, I made a little squeal sound and then I was like, oh shit. Uh, I did my ribs in again. Not too bad. Not too bad considering it's hard to breathe in it, which is amazing. I managed to pull off a good record. This recording was quite good. Um, you'll you'll never hear the unedited version ever because I'll never release it. But uh, normally it's quite bitty, but this was quite good. I seem to get some full lungs of oxygen this time, even though it hurt to breathe. But there we go. So yeah, ribs top up by my breastbone is fractured again, which is really annoying. Uh, but it's not horrific. Someone going past making a lot of noise. Yeah. I'm on a part of the waterway where most of the path is actually 
blocked off because they're fixing one of the locks at the moment. So um, it's quite nice, it's quite peaceful. You don't get bikes cycling along going, uh, uh, which is not too bad. So what else is going on? Uh, done my ribs, T's about to do. Uh, I was just gonna say, uh, this is not an advert, but it, it could be, uh, oh, hang on, T's up. Oh, I've got some quavers to eat in a bit. This is exciting, got some quavers. If my generator turns off, I'm gonna go into town and pick up my generator. If my generator hasn't turned up by the time I switch my phone back on, uh, I'm gonna go off and do my laundry. Oh, it's exciting. Go to the laundrette. Always good fun. The fun of living on a, on a boat. Obviously, obviously you don't have a washer. Some people have washing machines, but I don't see the point because it's like, it's a lot of water. It's like about 40 litres of water, which is a lot of water. And you just can't waste water like that. It's better just to go to a laundrette. It's cheap. It's like, it cost me a fiver to do the lot. Um, I thought I'd mention this. Uh, if you're currently thinking about Christmas gifts at the moment, obviously we've got Murder Mile. If you've got a partner or a friend who likes Murder Mile, we've got some Murder Mile mugs and badges and things like that. Um... Also, uh, not an advert, if ACAST are listening to this, not an advert, I just thought I'd, I'd mention this. Uh, uh, my stepmom and my dad run a, 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 a silver jewellery shop in Nantwich, a lovely little shop called uh, uh, Manor House Designs. If you're ever in, Mantwit, in Nantwich, uh, go in, pop in. There, it's, I think it's open. I think it's open Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I think. Or it could be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, you can go in, you can have a look. Uh, my stepmom's a really, really talented designer and she does silver jewellery and, you know, uh, she can do bespoke stuff. You can literally go in and say, I want to do this and she can do anything. She does stuff for men and women and whatever, like wedding gifts and all stuff like that. Or or um, I design them a website. I know. I design them a website by hand. Uh, not everything's on there, but a bulk of it is on there. So I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go in or just, just search for manorhousedesigns.co.uk. Um, and there's loads of gifts in there. So you, you know, they can send it all around the world. I, I, did, I sorted that out. I've, I've rigged it up. So uh, you can send it all around the world. Uh, it's all insured that you sent it. And it's all like really nice stuff. You know, really nice, intricate. You can do rings and do everything. But also... Um, do like a uh, nice little lapel pin so if you're looking for something for like a husband or a boyfriend or whatever or, or people who've got specific passions if they're like guitars or you know anything it's like um, my, my stepmom did one recently for this guy who, who uh, uh, really loves motorbikes but she's very good at detail even though it was just a lapel pin she managed to find the exact type of bike that he likes and and he was really blown away because it was really, even though it was small, it's really detailed. So, uh, so that's it. It's manorhousedesigns.co.uk. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. If Acast are listening to this, this is not a paid advert. This is just, I'm doing this because it's, you know, it's family. Uh, so I'm not being paid for this. I just thought if, if you're looking for Christmas gifts, give it a go. Um, another one, not a paid advert, but it's friend as well. And do you know what? I, I like when friends really go to town and really put in a lot of effort into making things are successful. Uh, my good friends Marco and Carla, really fantastic people. I met Marco on a script writing course a couple of years ago. It was shit, but we became good friends after that. Uh, a very talented guy, very good at kind of like building business from, from scratch. They own the Young Vegans uh, pie shop in uh, Camden Market, which is great. You could uh, check it out whenever you're there. It's really fantastic. It's all vegan pies. You... Unless someone told you there were vegan pies, you wouldn't know there were vegan pies. 
you would just go, this is delicious. Why is this steak fantastic? And it's not steak, it's seitan. It's, do you know, every, every, but it's all delicious. Anyway, uh, yesterday, no, day before, made, that makes no difference because you're listening to this in the future. Uh, uh, they just opened a new place. It's called uh, the Young Vegans Pizza Shop at 393 Cambridge Heath Road, which is in Bethnal Green, East London. Um, they've just opened up their the first pizza shop it's a restaurant and it does takeaway uh it's absolutely fantastic i had the dead barbie pizza which was delicious the great thing about um vegan pizza is that it tastes really great but you don't it's not stodgy like like regular pizzas do you only eat a regular pizza and you feel fat and you feel or you feel really you eat it but then you regret it afterwards this you don't you really you know you don't get that feeling afterwards it always feels really tasty so that was really good and i had one of one of carla's uh peanut butter mud pies which oh my god oh dear god <laughs> oh yeah Oh, oh, really nice, really nice. I, in fact, one, once I ate two in a row, I was meant to, I was meant to take them home, and I ate them in, in a row, which were very nice. Uh, yeah, no, everything's really great there. So give it a go. It's uh, I'll put I'll put a link in the show notes as well. It's Young Vegans Pizza Shop. They've also got the pie shop over in Bethnal Green. Uh, give it a go. They also deliver as well. Will they deliver to America? Probably not. So this is these this is probably this advert is probably for people who are local. Or if you're coming to London and you want to have a good old look around uh, London, that's a nice place to stop off for um, for your dindins. Right. Whoa. That was good. Mm. Ah. Right. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode uh, of Sulfuric. Um, these are, whew, I have to say this was a really, the last episode was really difficult to write because obviously, as I mentioned last time, nothing really happens. Uh, but that's the point is that I'm feeding you with all the information you need for the future. Um, so that when you, when we hear about all the other victims, uh, you're kind of, you know what John George Haig is thinking about before he's even met them. You, you, When you learn about their life and then they meet, you know instantly that he sees them as a mark and not a friendship and everything he's doing is about luring them into a trap um so this this one was really difficult as well this is uh this was part two i kind of even though people know this story anyway i've kind of i'm trying to find a new angle on it i found new ways of correlating the characters together uh but the thing with this is i'm trying to make it very different as well so even if you do know what's going to happen it's kind of it's leading you down a different path as well. And th- this was difficult for me to write this one because I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I was kind of, it wasn't quite getting there. But I was trusting my instincts on writing it and thinking it's I can, it's going somewhere, but where is it going? And I couldn't quite work it out. And then I worked, and then I really worked out what it was doing. And I was like, oh, it's so obvious. Um, so this is what I want to do with this one. If you, unlike things like the Blackout Ripper where, uh, all veg. Uh, well, Blackout, Blackout Ripper is kind of a very unlikable character. There's nothing likable about him, and his victims are entirely sympathetic. And then you've got Reg Christie, where there's a kind of a dark humour to Reg Christie. So, in a kind of a weird way, people seem to like Reg Christie, but not that way. But his victims are entirely sympathetic. With this story, this is why I want to do this one. Is is that? I want you to be uncertain about how you feel about things. So with John George Haig, I deliberately call him Johnny, uh, which was his nickname. Everyone called him, but it's kind of to make you... Instead of calling him John George Haig, which sounds a bit vicious, I call him Johnny, which makes it... 
So I want you to always be uncertain about how you feel about it. So if you talk to other people about it, some people may like him. They think think he's sympathetic. Some people will think he's pathetic. Some people is likable, dislikable. Is he an is he an adult? Is he a kind of a a little boy who hasn't grown up? Is he is he is he superior? Is he stupid? It's like there's no clear cut with this. So that's what I want with this. But also I want it the same with the victims as well. It's like you sympathise with them, but do you sympathise with them? It's kind of like really what is going on so uh that's what i'm kind of having a good time with because i i I think it's i want it to be unsettling all the way through uh so i'm having a lot of fun with that but this episode was really difficult to write just cut my arm Mm. blood blood oh look the blood there was blood and he was bleeding and it was red and it was bad uh Uh, so anyway, that's what I'm trying to do with this episode. I'm having fun with it. I'm working out the next ones, but it's, 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 it's hard to pin a lot of these down because it's, this is my own interpretation of it. So even with this story, it's kind of like, uh, at the start, I'm kind of writing it kind of, it's, it's kind of dark. And then you go into kind of, it's a story about friendship, a story about potential brothers, people who are so similar. And you think to yourself, why, how could he kill like a person who is so so like it's like it's a donald william donald swan is almost like him as a child almost in the same way and and now as brothers together surely they should be supporting each other and mac is supporting him but um um johnny only sees him as money really oh well from the point onwards when he realizes he's worth a lot of money uh but then you get into that i I, that's why i enjoyed writing it is because the second half goes into the the so-called uh uh, perfect murders but when you see it it is it's like I'd never really seen it until I really looked at it very carefully when I was uh I was going through the his witness statements that he made and they're they're quite vague and that really annoyed me because it's like, like even though Reg Christie was deluded his statements he was quite detailed with it except on the bits where he was hiding or it was a lie he would go quite vague whereas John George Haig is vague throughout it's like he skimmed across all of it and it's almost it's almost like he's lying but he's not he just he's just cocky he doesn't give a fuck he's like saying this is how easy it was for me killing these people but it was only when looking into it and then checking all the details it was like wow he's so incredibly vague because all of this he's skimming over the fact that he he messed up most of it so much of it was messed up um so that was really good fun. In fact, when reading this, I, I noticed details that I had never spotted before. And with John George Haig, you have to be really caught, careful about what you read and uh, what he kind of trips himself up with. It's like with one of them, he said, I only re- realised it when I was read- reading uh, this during the narration, was that he said uh, after he'd hit uh, Mac on the head with the kosh, obviously he was vague about what a kosh was. This changes throughout different uh, statements as well. He said, I got up. Now, where did he get up from? Because if he hit Mac over the head with the kosh, he would have been standing up. So why was he down? That's something I know, I would love to know more about. It's it's those little details like that that you have to go through his statement really carefully and go, okay, why, hang on, why, why was he there? Why was he, do you know, he says he leaves at this point, but why did he leave at this point? That's what I've done with this episode, but that's something else that I'd love to know more about did he hit him over the head and then did he when mac fell on the floor did he strangle him did he hit him again was he emptying mac's pockets whilst 
he was lying on the floor dying i suspect he probably was given the fact that he uh, was so obsessed with money but uh, we don't know it's all those details that i find fascinating so um i'm having a lot of fun I, all the next episodes will be difficult to write but uh, i'm enjoying them because they're a new perspective and i'm i'm having a lot of fun and the more i go into each episode the more i realize how different each how each character seems almost the same but as you go through them, you realise the, the, the differences between each character and how Johnny feels about them, and or, or, or actually doesn't feel about them, uh, what they represent, and uh, different different ways of tripping him up. Because obviously, as I'm trying to write this from his perspective. More blood. Mm. Um, so, uh, I'm just going to make this clear right now. The opening that I did on this in the prison workshop where he's... Uh, uh putting the field mouse in acid um we know very little about that uh he's made a couple of statements about it but as with john jorg hey he's very vague about it so what i've had to do is uh go through this state all of his statements about this really carefully i've gone into the history of prison workshops i've gone into what equipment they would have used i've gone into what kind of jobs they had i've gone into the prisons that it kind of he went into as well and what I've done is I've taken all these elements and tried to create a logical version. So we know we know that he said he had a glass jar. He put sulfuric acid in it, which came from a, uh, an electric bell. Um, if you read a lot of uh, lazy books about this, about uh, this moment, they just say electric bell. But none of them, none of these authors seem to sit down and go, oh, an electric bell is a battery. It's an electromagnetic bell. It's, it's actually a battery. It's not a bell. Oh, it's so frustrating. That's, that's that's what I what I do is I go through and I go what does that mean what does that mean what does that mean and what's in the bell what do what do you know so so why would he why would he be using uh, sulfuric acid why would it be there what would be the purpose of it what was his role so I've basically taken all these details and I've created that around that story but what he did do was did have a glass jar he did put a field mouse into it where he says he did tip sulfuric acid into there it did dissolve it did fizz it did turn into a black gloop and he tipped it down the sink that's all true uh so yeah but obviously I, I've, I've had to slightly dramatize this because if i were to tell it to you in the way that john george haig says it you go oh, shit <laughs> so <laughs> he makes it really difficult he really does because his statements are such shite they really are uh so uh we have technically two locations in this episode but i'm only i've only really referenced one here i'll probably go i might go into details in the other one later but the, the one oops one location was the goat tavern uh which is at uh 3a kensington high street uh that's if you've ever been uh it's it's just off hyde park it's just opposite kensington palace uh it's a pub it was built in 1702 it used to be uh originally was built as a coffee shop uh it, later it got turned into an ale house it was uh, entirely rebuilt in the 1880s but it looks exactly today as it did when uh johnny and mac went into there for that final drink uh, and meal where he kind of got uh mac a little bit sozzled to kind of make him a little bit more, more pliable before leading him down to his workshop uh where he would kill him oh the murder um we also have the other location in there which is the basement i'll be using that a little bit more next week and another location that we've already slightly referenced in this episode as well uh, uh but obviously that was the basement at 79 gloucester road um the building's still there today 
the entrance to it, if you look online, people keep saying, oh, oh, it's under the KFC. It's not under the KFC. It's under the uh, the Lebanese restaurant on the left. Uh, it just it makes it funnier for people if they say it's at the KFC. <laughs> anyway, the basement is kind of boarded up on the outside. Uh, so, the, so the front entrance is boarded up. But if you go to Stanhope Mews at the back, so uh, the front of it is kind of where the uh, Gloucester Road tube station is. It's a very busy road. It's an intersection. It's really busy. It's like if you were to lead a victim in there, you wouldn't want to lead them in the front door. Whereas at the back is a mews. And it's uh, small, sloping, dark. Uh, got some got it it, uh, now it's kind of posh houses but back then it would have been workshops slash houses Uh, so most of them would have been quiet on a Saturday night anyway it would have been empty so that would be the perfect way to uh, lure his victim in Uh, that was the second location yes okay but we'll we'll learn more about that next week because that that location will be back Ooh, exciting tea o'clock hmm I did a big slurp last week. Sorry. Uh, normally, I don't listen to extra marks. I'm like, I can't be asked because I, I know I don't edit it. So there's no point me listening to this. I just waffle and then just walk away. The first bit I've edited. The second bit I can't be asked. But because there were some bits I, I wanted to double check what I'd said. Just uh, I didn't edit anything out. But you know, sometimes I just think, mm, was that right? Did I need to check that? So uh, yeah. Uh, so I did listen to it back and I realised I'd done a big slurp. And I know people hate slurps, so I uh, did a quiet slurp then. Right. Mac. William Donald McSwan Jr. I didn't put his junior in there. Uh, I just defined him as Mac in here. Uh, so um, 1934, as mentioned, he started his pin table business. That's as it was called back then. It's actually pinball machines. Uh, he opened a small salon, a small salon, uh, at number one grey coat place in SW1. Uh, so that's Westminster. Um, uh, da, da, as mentioned, he, it was known as Max Automatics Limited. Uh, da, 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 and he wound this up um, 2nd of September 1944. So that was five days before he died. So uh, you could you could see how his kind of uh, he was terrified about what was going on by that point. Um, William H. V. Thompson was the man was managing the arcade for Mac at Vanston Place in Waltham Green, uh, uh, SW Six. This was where uh, in June 1937, John George Hay called in. Didn't know him. He was looking for a job, and he uh, was seeking a job as an attendant, basically looking after one of the pinball parlors. Um, uh, so uh, Johnny got a job there. He worked there from February to May 1937. And Mac later put uh, Johnny in charge of an arcade in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, November 1937 to August 1940. Um, oh, no, sorry. Uh, during that period, that's when Mac was in prison. And when he came out, uh, Mac gave him uh, another job. Obviously, as mentioned before, he was also his clerk and his chauffeur as well. Uh, 1940-41 Mac uh, had another pinball business in Tooting uh, that's South London uh, uh, that was in Broadway Market he opened an arcade and a confectionery shop in Fair Green Market in Mitcham <coughs> although he very, very quickly sold that uh, conscription we've mentioned about this before obviously it's wartime 1939-1945 to 1945. all eligible men had to fight uh, conscription age was 18 to 30 initially but then they increased it as the war progressed 
I could be wrong on this. It was 18, I think it was 18 to 50 it increased to. Uh, and uh, even though, um, so uh, obviously Mac ran a small, uh, uh, an engineering firm, but he had interest in other small engineering firms as well. Um, and even though it was a pinball business, obviously a lot of people around that time were able to kind of take their machines and kind of turn it into something else. Um, so even though he was doing, he was making pinball machines, importing, but also making pinball machines, uh, because obviously pinballs, you got ball bearings, which were really useful for the war effort, uh, especially with, uh, aircraft parts, things like that, propellers. Um, so this, his, his work was regarded as, uh, vital, uh, which meant he was not eligible to be conscripted. Uh, but that was early in the war. Uh, June 1940, he had already registered as a conscientious objector, uh, which meant uh, he didn't want to fight, didn't believe in fighting. Um, but later, it's not explained why, his name was removed from the register, whether he removed it or whether someone else did, we don't know. Uh, he was directed to appear at the medical board. This was later when um, his occupation was not regarded as uh, vital to the war effort. So then he became eligible for conscription. He had a medical board uh, in Fulham, but he failed to attend. Uh, and from that point on onwards, uh, he changed his address three or four times. Obviously, um, he had his address that he lived at, which was 86 Tatched. Book Street in Pimlico, but he also used all of the other addresses uh, in Wimbledon, Rains Park, and Beckenham, which were the houses that he owned, but he rented out, so he used those as well. So that meant that the um, uh, Ministry of Labour and National Service were unable to track him down. Uh, what else have we got? What else have we got? Uh, Mr. Herbert Woodman, who was a partner of HG Hinch and Co. At uh, 31 Askew Crescent, uh, WW12, which is Shepherd's Bush, uh, he let McSwan uh, have part of his premises. There, there was kind of a bit of a merger going on uh, in order to do some uh, a little uh, acetylene welding and some contracted. Oh, and some contracted machine parts to other contractors. Uh, but he said that he rarely hung around there. Um, I didn't really go too deep into uh, William McSwan's kind of uh, back history with these other uh, mergers that he did. There was a lot of different businesses that he had. All of them were legitimate, uh, but one of them will crop up probably in the next episode. Although I say that, it was meant to be in this episode. I moved it to the next episode, but it might disappear. It might not prove important. I don't know. Uh, that's why I enjoy writing these is I put all the details in and then sometimes I go no this should be a bit later this should be a bit later and then I get later and I go hmm maybe I don't need it and I just go yeah let's remove it so there's many things that I might mention that uh, were, were never in there um, but this premises will will crop up again uh, it might do or it might not uh, yeah but William Donald Swan do you know uh, all of the people who worked for him or knew him uh, they said he never really spoke much about his life, about what he was up to. He rarely said what he was doing. He was uh, quite shy, quite softly spoken. A um, little bit of a volatile temper every so often, but that was because he was very incredibly frustrated. Uh, what else we got? As mentioned, he had, he had a, a brief criminal record, which was uh, weird. It didn't really seem to make sense. Because uh, obviously he had money. Obviously he was a businessman. 
uh, obviously he had assets. Obviously he, he lived a lifestyle that wasn't lavish. So really, why did he need certain things? And and, and the, just like, just as mentioned, just like Johnny in his moments of kind of, um, when he had that kind of crisis moment where he stole a fridge and some bunk beds and some cloth uh, during wartime instead of doing his usual um, fraud. Uh, on the 1st of June, 1943, Mac was bound over for 12 months. Basically, that means he's on probation. If he if he messes up again, he'll be uh, uh, in more trouble. He was fined £12 at the County of London Sessions for receiving a quantity of lipsticks valued at £23. So that's, uh, that's quite a lot of lipsticks. Uh, that would be a big old box of them. Obviously, lipsticks around that point um, had been... Uh, they were rationed as well because the oils inside lipsticks were vital for the production of, of munitions and uh, airplane parts. So uh, even though, if you if you look in history, even though there's a whole there's a whole advertising campaign around that point that basically was saying, women, you need to uh, make sure you have uh, lipstick on and all of your makeup, even though it's wartime, because Hitler absolutely despised makeup. So he says uh, there was a conscientious uh, message to kind of make sure that women would kind of always had their lipstick on, even if you were service women, you had your lipstick on because you know Hitler hated it. Uh, but the problem is. Um, a lot of it was black market, so a lot of the lipsticks that are out there didn't have like the the you know the animal fats and things like that. They had to use uh, substitutes instead. So uh, obviously these were a quantity of lipsticks which were black market. Quite why Max stole them, we don't know. Uh, this seems to go uh, a little bit missing. Um, then just after this, so 11th of March 1944, he was fined four pounds at Bow Street Magistrates Court for the unlawful possession of a U.S. Army electric torch. Yeah. Why? Don't know. Really don't know. Doesn't make sense why he would have that. He was an engineer. He could, I mean, he pretty much could make anything. And that's what he was good at. You know, he was able to put his, like, he could have made himself a, 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 an electric torch probably better than the US Army had were issuing at that point. Because they would have done it cheap because it was there to do it mass. So, uh, yeah, why he nicked it, we don't know. Um, 23rd of April 1944, again he was bound over for two years, fined £10 at the County of London Sessions for breach of recognisance, which basically means he broke probation. Uh, that would suggest, because he was bound over for stealing the lipsticks, that he must have uh, committed another theft again, but it doesn't say what the, it was for. Hmm, because the torch was unlawfully possessed, but it wasn't theft. Hmm. So we don't know. We don't know. That's a weird thing. Uh, during the period of 22nd of March to the 10th of May 1944, Mac had uh, Mac was Mac had given his probation officer, a Mr. Watson, four different addresses. The last being 22 Kempsford Gardens, Earl's Court, SW5. Hmm. Bizarre. Anyway. Yeah, that's it. I think that's everything. I think that's everything I need to say. I mean, that was uh, it's about half an hour of extra mile. You don't need more of this, do you? It's just oh, uh, so uh, <laughs> I'm having a tea. I'm tired. I've got laundry to do. Uh, mm. So uh, I, the, online, as always, uh, I'll do a blog with this. There'll be uh, the transcript that goes with it, so you could so you could uh, read along with it if you want to. There'll be some uh, pictures on there. There'll be I'll put up the two location videos probably. I haven't decided yet. Uh, they will be on there. 
what else have we got? Uh, obviously, if you're a Patreon subscriber, thank you to all my Patreon subscribers. It's very kind of you. Um, uh, there will be more stuff on there. I'll be putting on some pictures that no one will get to see. They'll be all secret. Uh, and uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. Are we done? I think we're done. Good. Good. I'm going to go and do laundry and things and uh, try and edit this. How are we doing? Yes. Okay, that's it. That's it. We're done. We're done. We're done. Right. Everyone, go and have have yourselves a good day. A lovely day and things and doodah and... Uh, um, don't get worried about politics and all bullshit like that because it's all crap. None of us can do anything about it. This is what I've realised now. I don't. I don't look at the news anymore. I mean, I haven't done for a long time. I realised if you pick up a newspaper and you go, "Oh, I'm angry about this," it's like, yeah, but you can't do anything about it. It's like we're kind of all powerless, really. It's like you can vote whatever way you want, but you know the politicians all they do what they want to do they do what's best for them or what they say is best for us but really it's what's best for them and their buddies and you know what they want and what their goals are and really we have no control over it a friend of mine hasn't looked at the news for like 10 years and he's entirely oblivious of everything except what goes on in his life and I was like how can you live like that and he's like yeah but this is all I need to know it's like and you think about it he's absolutely right like everything he needs to know he learns from the people around him he doesn't learn anything from newspapers except shit that he doesn't need to know about. It's crap on telly. Who cares? It's like someone's opinion of what they think you need to know, but it's not the tr- it's not the whole truth. It's a, it's a version. It's an opinion. It's a bias. It's, you know. Whereas, you know, you hear people walking down the street and they're like they're they're like, oh yeah, I think this, I think that. But it's not I think this, I think that. What it really is is I heard this, I read this. This is what I think based on what someone else thinks which I've absorbed and I'm I'm like yeah I'm going to I'm going to agree to that as well but I've no experience of it. So uh, this is what I've realized is it's all bollocks isn't it? It's all bollocks and you have no control over it except what you can do in your own life, your own little bubble, your little sphere, your world. Your tiny world is everything that you have control over. Everything outside that is just fluff. It means nothing. So uh, so just enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your little bubble. Don't get worried about what's going on in the papers or what's happening and what politicians are doing or whether the stock market is up or down. Because let's be honest, it doesn't. What does it mean? What does it really mean? Oh, who cares? Just have fun. Go and treat yourself. Have a cake. I'm going to have a cake. I'm going to have a, a, a Belgian bun today, even though Percy Ingalls hadn't got one yesterday, which was good because it meant I couldn't eat one. Today I want one. Today I think I want one. Right. Uh, all of fun. Episode next three next week. Uh, I have no idea how I'm going to write it. It could be good. Uh, it could be terrifying. Right. I'm buggering off now. Uh, that was fun. Lots of love. Speak to you all soon. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.